Today on a special Colorado Matters. The pandemic brought waves of loss and disruption that have taken a toll on mental health. What I'm seeing is higher rates of traumatization and PTSD symptoms, definitely in healthcare professionals, people who have survived COVID, essential workers, and then, you know, the bereaved. Mental health needs will probably persist even when the pandemic recedes, but there is hope. The norms is not norm anymore, so you have to elevate yourself. And as you get through, you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's something that I teach the little ones and the older kids. Let's talk about how trauma can show up in our bodies and emotions and how we can take care of ourselves and our communities. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. What does your pandemic stress look like if you close your eyes and imagine it? For Pam Giordano, it's like an hourglass. Opportunities and things that were important trickling away little by little. The 74-year-old from Denver lost her part-time teaching job during lockdowns last March. She feels like the pandemic has shortened her opportunities to work and travel. You don't get that time back. When the feeling that opportunities are running through the hourglass is overwhelming, Giordano gets outside. So I could uh, run off to the state parks anytime I want because there's uh, a couple of them that are not too far from home. But it certainly has been a highly stressful time. It has been a stressful time for a long time. Mental health professionals around the world are seeing a rising wave of anxiety, depression, even post-traumatic stress disorder. And they think more people will need support even after the virus is under control. So today we're talking about the pandemic's lasting mental health effects and what you can do to take care of yourself and the people around you. Dr. Shaley Jane is a psychiatrist in Palo Alto, California and a post-traumatic stress disorder specialist. Dr. Jane, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. PTSD is rising during the pandemic. What can you tell us from your practice and research about how big the wave seems to be? I think we're still in the early stages of gathering kind of empirical data, but certainly clinically, what I'm seeing is higher rates of traumatization and PTSD symptoms, probably in in five groups. Uh, Certainly people who have survived COVID, you know, they had a life-threatening experience with COVID. Maybe they were in an ICU or, um, you know, close to death. Definitely in healthcare professionals who worked on the front lines. Essential workers is another group. Again, you know, the people who are delivering our packages, people who were keeping grocery stores open, you know, they were subjected to many situations where perhaps they didn't feel safe or they were being exposed. And then, you know, the bereaved as well, the way that people have lost people, they've lost people suddenly in this pandemic. And um, all those rituals that we have that help people heal from a loss, 
funerals, you know, religious practices. There was a lot of restrictions just for safety purposes. And then finally, the last group, it's a little bit more indirect, but we do know that when there is a lot of economic recession, when there is a lot of unemployment, we do know that there is this correlates with an increase in family violence. You know, the pressure really infiltrates down to the most vulnerable in our society. And whenever there's family violence, there is a resultant PTSD in the survivors of that violence. It strikes me that as you list the groups of people who are at high risk, a lot of people fall into those groups from folks who have been sick to folks who have known people who have been sick or held various types of jobs. And this isn't just in Colorado or the United States. PTSD rates are also rising around the world. As someone who studies PTSD, is it daunting to consider the magnitude of global trauma the pandemic is causing? It is daunting. And what's kind of hard right now is we're still dealing with the threat, you know. So top priority has to be dealing with the, you know, physical economic consequences of this pandemic. But yeah, the psychological toll, it's definitely very evident right now, but I think it's going to be this long drawn out process. It's going to become more and more obvious what the long term psychological toll is in the weeks, months and years, maybe even decades that follow. And what do you think that PTSD symptoms from the pandemic look or feel like? I think people have an association with PTSD with maybe more overt traumas like war or injury. So there are many symptoms of PTSD. Like you, like you said, there's the textbook symptoms, you know, the nightmares where you're reliving that horrific traumatic experience again and again and again. And certainly I've heard anecdotal responses from, um, you know, frontline healthcare workers who will relive their experiences taking care of patients in the ICU, you know, certainly re-experiencing. So people who are trauma survivors can be triggered by reminders of the event or, or things they associate with the event, you know. So again, it might be, um, you know, some experience that you had, say, in a hospital, it might be a certain smell or a certain sound in the hospital that will trigger those symptoms of PTSD and that kind of re-experiencing of the trauma in the present. Lesser known about PTSD is the mood symptoms of PTSD, anger, shame, guilt, irritability. These are the predominant mood states of PTSD. Um, and then also, there is a lot of comorbidity with PTSD. So a lot of people who are living with uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, there's high rates of depression um, and addiction. So it might not manifest as clearly because this person might look depressed or this person might look like they have an alcohol problem. But really equally prevalent is actually the PTSD, which is maybe getting masked or covered up by these secondary problems. Right. And then I want to go back to those triggers a little bit. For a lot of people, loneliness has been a really intense feature of this pandemic. Could even things like extended periods by themselves be a trigger? Or what are some other kinds of triggers people might not expect? Uh, you know, I think when people think of triggers, they, they tend to think of obvious environmental clues. You know, like I said, so a smell or a sound um, that reminds you of the trauma. I think what people forget is sometimes the feelings that you feel when you've been through a traumatic situation. So you might feel anxiety or panic or fear or feeling like you're not in control. Just those feelings alone can be triggering. So if ever you're in a situation again where you feel out of control or where you feel like um, you're restricted or you're going to lose something or you're going to miss out on something, even that in itself can trigger symptoms of a traumatic experience in a vulnerable individual. 
That makes sense. It surprised me how much the first snowfall after the summer where things were more open and we could see people, the first snowfall, I was like, oh my word, this might send us back to the spring um, when the pandemic was more locked down. And I was just surprised by the feelings that brought up. Mm -hmm. Um, Your research on PTSD suggests that many people will recover from the traumas of the pandemic on their own, but a significant minority will need help. What could help look like? So help could be uh, in many forms. On a most basic level, I would say education. You know, in my field, we call it psychoeducation. Basically, simply put, increasing your awareness about the fact that it would not be unusual for this pandemic to have taken a psychological toll. And like you say, for the vast majority of people, they will heal naturally with the passage of time. And once things get back to quote unquote normal, they'll be able to put the pandemic in in, in their past. But a, a significant minority won't. And, you know, when we're talking about millions and millions and millions of people, even a significant minority is a lot of people. So first of all, just entertaining the notion that there may have been a psychological impact and being curious about that and educating yourself about that, how it might impact your mood, how it might impact the way you relate to other people, how it might impact your way of coping, you know. Um, So educating yourself, and there's plenty of fantastic education out there in the public domain that is meant for regular people to just understand what you might be feeling. And I think that's huge. You know, I really believe in that saying, name it so you can tame it. Um, so just starting with basic psychoeducation, increasing your awareness. Um, and then secondly, you know, what we talk about for people who have clinically very significant symptoms and who are really struggling, we definitely recommend formal evaluation by a qualified mental health professional. And if indicated, you know, a formal course of treatment, which is typically in the form of talk therapy, we have wonderful evidence to support the effectiveness of talk therapies for the treatment of PTSD. And sometimes, depending on the situation, there may be a role for medication. And again, there are plenty of medications that have been tried and tested and shown to be very uh, useful for the symptoms of PTSD. And how can someone know if they might really benefit from that professional help for PTSD? Sometimes in my experience, it's your loved ones who are telling you to get help. And Mm. I think if your loved ones are telling you to get help, you should listen to them. Um, You know, sometimes it's hard for us to be objective about our own experiences and especially in a situation where you know in in America like more than half a million people have lost their lives because of COVID the problem we get into sometimes is because there's been such devastating awful loss for so many many millions sometimes I think as survivors you feel like well I'm still standing I'm still breathing what is it that I've got to feel sorry about but the reality is is a stressful situation can really impact your ability to be psychologically healthy it can impact your ability to be present and loving in your relationships it can impact your work performance. So I would look at those areas first, you know, your work performance, how you're doing at home with people, how you're doing with your friends, with your loved ones, and then look at your coping strategies. How are you coping? Are you using unhealthy coping strategies? Are you spending tons of time online, kind of checked out of life? Are you abusing alcohol, maybe turning to Uh, drugs or, you know, are you using unhealthy coping mechanisms or are you coping healthily? You know, are you watching your sleep? Are you making sure you stay hydrated? Are you taking time for, you know, solitude and kind of meditation or, you know, doing breathing exercises? You know, no one's saying that you're not, you can't struggle. I think how you cope is a really important indicator of whether or not you're going to need some professional help to get through it or not. And you mentioned that just because of the sheer number of people dealing with really intense situations during the pandemic, it might be a lot of people who need that professional help. How is the pandemic highlighting gaps in access to mental health care? 
Yeah, well, that's a very important question. And unfortunately, even prior to the pandemic, there were well-established disparities in access to high-quality mental health care, not only in the United States, but across the whole world. And, um, you know, if you look at the situation here at home, if you look at urban areas, rural areas, areas where there's a lot of poverty, there is a well documented lack of qualified mental health professionals serving in those areas. I mean, there's a global lack of qualified mental health professionals, but those gaps are exacerbated more in those vulnerable communities. And, you know, looking at the list of vulnerable groups, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of them come from those pre-existing vulnerable communities. So, you know, essential workers, you know, even if you look at who died from COVID, there was a lot of colorization of the COVID pandemic, a lot of brown and black people dying from it. So um, you can already see that there is going to be an, a gap in access. I want to be an optimist, though. I think by spreading awareness, by spreading the word, I'm hoping it won't have to be this massive gap if we can just make ourselves aware that those who are most vulnerable are going to be vulnerable not only physically because of the pandemic, but psychologically and emotionally too. The American Psychological Association, they recently published an article on traumatic stress in the age of COVID-19. And researchers Danny Horish and Adam Brown, they make the case that facing a pandemic of this magnitude, the mental health response will surely need to go beyond that of trained experts. And they encourage trauma professionals to invest in partnerships with community leaders and agencies that integrate findings from research with local traditions and practices. I'm wondering if you've seen effective community partnerships like they describe. So I'm a huge fan of that idea and that notion and my own research has been done in um, the hiring of peers, you know, P-E-E-R-S, who are lay educated people who are hired as part of the mental health treatment team. They often have a lived experience with uh, PTSD and trauma themselves, or they come from the community that we're trying to help. So in my clinic experience, because I work at a VA hospital, a lot of our peers, they are veterans themselves who have a lived experience with PTSD, but they're further along in their journey than the people who they're trying to help. And oftentimes when you engage someone who is from that community, who understands the mindset and the conditions of those communities, they really act as this very unique beacon of hope for people who are traumatized or who are depressed or who are struggling because uh, there's such a common bond through that um, shared history, you know, and shared identity. So I'm a massive proponent of utilizing, you know, what we call, you know, paraprofessionals or or even community partnerships to really expand our reach. Because if you look at just the qualified mental health professionals alone, we're not going to be able to put a dent in the issue. We need to move towards this model of just becoming a much more trauma-informed society. Each and every one of us can do our bit to become more trauma-informed in the way we navigate the world and the way we understand the world. And then the odds are when you meet someone or you happen to interact with someone who has a trauma history or has symptoms of PTSD, you're going to be a lot more empathic and in tune with what they're going through. And none of us should underestimate the impact of even that alone. You know, so so I think moving to this model of becoming trauma-informed across the board is the way to move forward. And that was even pre-pandemic. That was my belief. Post-pandemic, definitely. We may have no other choice. And for people who don't have access to mental health professionals, are there ways to draw on self-care and community strengths that you think could help specifically? 
Absolutely. You know, take a good, long, hard look at your life. First of all, get educated. Anybody who has access to the internet, you can find some really great, well-vetted resources to just get yourself educated about the symptoms first. And then secondly, take a long look at your life and start identifying, okay, who are the people, places, communities that help me and who maybe not so much (laughs) and maybe start making those people that are helpful to you emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, uh, a, a priority for those communities in in whatever way you're engaging with those communities. And, and la- lastly, like, like I touched on before, uh, take a hard look at the way you cope, you know, and ask yourself, is this a healthy way of coping? Is this moving my life forward? Is this helping me thrive? Or am I simply white knuckling it through life and just getting through the day and just surviving? Because what I would want for everybody is that they are living the best version of their life, that they're being the best version of themselves and that they're thriving and they feel fulfilled. And if that's not happening, take a look at what you can do to start changing that. And you've mentioned that community support a couple of times, that sometimes it's people's family who help them know that it's time to get help. How can people support folks in their community who are dealing with symptoms like these, whether or not PTSD has been diagnosed? There's a lot we can do because it's very well documented. There is still horrendous stigma towards mental health conditions in our cultures. It has gotten better over the 20 years that I've been a a doctor, Um, but there's still a ways to go. So I think if each and every one of us just worked on our own internalized stigmas, you know, if each and every one of us just worked on being better listeners... Uh, and being more open um, and dealing with our own discomfort when someone comes to us to tell us something that is troubling and discomforting, you know, I, I think we can all work on those things every single day. Then that means that when you meet someone who has a trauma history or who's been through something very traumatic, you're just going to give them a much more receptive and open environment. And If we're all doing that and that effect is multiplied over and over again, that that can be very helpful and healing within itself. And when we talk about PTSD, it is really important to emphasize this is treatable. You're very hopeful about PTSD outcomes, right? Absolutely. That is the take-home message, hope, hope, hope. I mean, over the last uh, 21 years, there has been a mass exponential growth in the research surrounding PTSD. And we have a lot of very hard-earned knowledge about how to diagnose it, how to treat it, how to prevent it. Um, And so, you know, this was a condition that used to be considered incurable and disabling, but today that is just not true. So the first step is just to recognize that you're struggling and go get help because there are plenty of great options out there. You don't have to live with this. You don't have to suffer. Dr. Jane, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Dr. Shaylee Jane is a psychiatrist in Palo Alto. She wrote The Unspeakable Mind, A Guide to Understanding PTSD. Community support for mental health during the pandemic has been a lifeline for some veterans in eastern Colorado. KRCC's Elena Rivera shares how they've helped each other through feelings of isolation and anxiety virtually. It's a Friday afternoon at the beginning of April. Conrad Spaulding is decked out in his Zoom finest, a colorful sequin jacket, guitar in hand. He and his wife, Rosemary, live in Douglas County. The Vietnam veteran is playing me a sampling of songs, an end-of-the-week virtual concert. I spent many a night uh, performing in these um, clubs and uh, honky-tonks across the United States when I came back from uh, overseas. So um, I wrote this uh, quite a while back, and uh, it's called Barstool Dream. 
Sitting on this barstool looking at you. Spalding got his first guitar when he was 12 and joined the Marines at 16. He did two tours. When he got back, he disappeared into music. Music became a lifeline again during the pandemic as he worked through anxieties about his family and his own health. I think this is the, probably the one of the worst situations um, I've had to deal with, uh, life-threatening, that is, since uh, Vietnam. Okay, it kind of came up to that level. Uh, nothing comes to the level of Vietnam, but it, it did come up to that, that level. Spalding says the counselor told him about peer support groups the VA Eastern Colorado Healthcare System was hosting virtually. He started attending three times a week. Spalding says once folks knew he played music, he started to share songs over the phone. They really, really enjoyed it. Um, there's nothing like uh, original music from a musician. I'm not pumping myself up, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Uh, so it's really, uh, it's a real fun kind of mysterious thing. <laughs> COVID has definitely, I think, put a challenge uh, and, and kind of thrown a wrench in there for, uh, for our veterans and also for our community at large. That's Edgar Villarreal. He's the program manager for suicide prevention at the regional VA system. It has become harder to be able to find those connections and those supports. Villarreal says in the beginning, it was all about being proactive. He created a partnership with the infectious disease team, so when folks got a call about a positive COVID-19 test, they also went through a screener that pinpointed their mental health needs. Villarreal and his team also created support packages for around 800 veterans who had tested positive for the virus over the past year. They included things like thermometers and stress balls, a reminder that someone was thinking about them. It was something that veterans weren't necessarily expecting. We did get some feedback and calls from veterans that said, hey, who sent me this care package? I, you know, I just wanted to thank you. Villarreal says peer support groups are part of this. Cottrell Caldwell is one of the specialists who helps organize them. At the beginning of the pandemic, the Army veteran says he ran a new daily group by phone. At first, everyone shared information about COVID. But as the months went on, the conversation shifted to how folks were coping. You know, sometimes when you're dealing with a tough time, you forget that you have strength, that you've already been through something, you've already faced some type of resilience. Um, and now you just get hit in the face and it's, it's just being able to be able to support each other uh, through tough times. I think it, it allowed them to see that. The groups have connected with more than 1,300 veterans since April of 2020. Caldwell says he's found his purpose giving back, especially during the pandemic. For me, I, I, I wanna let people know that, you know, recovery is real. You know, and I think that's why I stay doing what I'm doing, because a lot of people don't believe it. You know, but if you could be that person, just that one person to give somebody some hope. That speaks volumes. As for Conrad Spaulding, he's not sure when he'll get back to the VA for in-person services, but he's still finding ways to reach out virtually and writing songs in the meantime. This particular piece I wrote all oh, about eight months ago and it's called uh, Move On. I wrote it for Rosemary my beautiful wife, and uh, but it applies to everybody. My lady told me yesterday, I wouldn't care if I walked out there, that I'm tough as nails and can survive anywhere. I'm Elena Rivera, KRCC News. Well, guess what? Kids are stressed because of the pandemic, too. Antoine Johnson is a behavioral specialist at World Compass Academy, a charter elementary and middle school in Castle Rock, Colorado. He works with students who have emotional, behavior, and mental health challenges, 
and he's seeing the grind from the pandemic affect kids in his school. A lot of depression is going on. Uh, We do have kids who are self-harming themselves and uh, not being able to express themselves on how they're feeling. A lot of them are kind of uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainty. They see issues that are going on within their community, within their households, and they really find it hard to deal with the daily activities. And from what I see, they're not as open as an adult would be. They don't have the capacity within their within their social functioning to be able to express themselves in a way. So they internalize a lot of things that's going on and it's really hard for them to express it. And they are actually feeling anxiety, mostly anxiety too. Yeah. And trauma is just such a broad word. What are some of the specific ways that you see kids being affected by the pandemic or some of the specific things that are causing some of those anxieties? Well, some of the pieces that I experience now when I see kids internalizing, internalizing a lot of the environmental uh, issues that's going on with the shootings, especially uh, those that we've seen recently, mm-hmm. and they internalize it and they're acting out physically towards each other also. Um, and the kids who want to be friendly find themselves not being able to be friendly. You know, they really want to be friendly, but they kind of withdraw from each other when when it comes to that. And I know I've heard from several students and parents of students of kids who had straight A's or good grades before the pandemic who've really suffered either from not being able to keep up with distance schooling or just with the pressures of the pandemic. Is that something that you're also seeing kids or that kids are coming to you for help for? Well, pretty much. Um I always like to use a phrase of, you know, a brain that's stress is not concerned about learning. It's more or less concerned about survival. If you uh, come to school and your fight and flight mechanism is on, then there's no way that you can actually concentrate and receive information from teachers and actually show what you're learning when it comes to testing and focus and things like that and assignments they're really struggling because the brain is in a fight and flight uh, mode versus, you know, receptive learning. One of the key aspects that we find that most kids need is a safe and caring environment. Yeah. I would keep the the Mozart music on a lot throughout. I'm noticing that kids are requesting uh, soft music, you know, in the classroom and in my office they would like to listen to the music just to calm down. It's a really just good body response to to help regulate those feelings. Um, I want to talk more with you about how you help students and families be more resilient and overcome some of those feelings around trauma. But I also want to ask you about your own experiences. I know that you've had some experience dealing with the mental health effects of trauma from your time in the military, and you served in the Army for 20 years. Can you tell me a little bit more about that time and how it affected you? Well, It didn't really come out until I actually got out of the Army because, you know, while I'm in the Army, while while I was in the Army, we actually, that's the way we lived. That was our culture. We lived uh, fight and flight on 24-7. You know, we was always on guard. And the culture itself was normal because that was our environment. And uh, coming home from deployments, that was the biggest issue of trying to let my guard down and to 
get back into the community. Yeah, like to reintegrate after you've been in such a different situation than everyone else. Right, right. And then once we actually got it under control, it was time to go back. But once I retired, I did notice that there was a lot of uh, ways that I had to reprogram myself, you know, especially working with kids. Here I am, you know, military and all of a sudden, uh, now you're going to work with kids. You can't have the same training mentality of soldiers versus children, you know. So for me, that was a big transformation. Once I learned how to develop a friendship relationship, then there was a mutual uh, respect as to, I'm the teacher, you're the student. Are you going to listen? Oh, yes, sir. I, I got you. So moving from that on. It worked. It's a very different kind of communication. And after those 20 years, I mean, and that was some of that was during the Gulf War, I believe, right? Yes, yes. How did you find that that affected you and your body or in your own mental health? Well, when it comes to um, stress and what it does to the body and the brain, you know, going to college, trying to, you know, to become a teacher, uh, there was a lot of uh, anxiety, test anxiety, especially and uh, focusing on, you know, becoming a teacher, those 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 uh, courses were pretty hard, you know, and I had to actually learn how to calm down. So I started doing my own research on what does it take to get into that state. And as I studied, I read more and I saw it within my students. So we kind of both were learning and practicing at the same time. That's what made it so unique was that as I was learning how to calm myself and to become more of a kind of relaxed person, I'm teaching my kids as my students the same methods and treatments and things like that in the classroom. So tell me more about what you are teaching kids about how to relax and how to overcome those feelings that might be really intense right now. Right. A lot of them know. They know. Um, I'm, I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of sadness and depression. So they know all this and they're like little magnets. You know, and that's the powerful thing behind it is that when I do introduce a strategy, um, wow, the buy-in is amazing. You know, kids come in and they're stressed and, you know, I just click the music on while I'm talking with them in the background and they don't realize that they are feeling so calm. And a lot of times they're like, wow, this is amazing. I was like, why? What are you talking about? He's like, well, I'm starting to feel calm already. You know, they would come in the classroom and they're shaking their legs and you could see the stress, what's going on with them. You know, they can't sit calm. Their hands are tapping, their feet are tapping. All of a sudden, within five minutes, you know, that stops. And, and I'll ask them and say, hey, look at your feet. Check out your hands. You're not tapping anymore. It's like, oh man, I'm starting to feel calm. So when you start teaching those strategies of how music affects the body and the brain, it's a teaching moment. At the same time, they feel it. You know, like I said, they know when they come in to see me that um, they have these issues going on. So they're very, very in tune to buy in and practice how to deep breathe, how to use visualization, um, guided imagery, you know, affirmations, progressive muscle relaxation. So all those things that I'm teaching them, they actually feel it. That's huge. I mean, each of those is just such a concrete technique that kids can take. Tell me a little bit more about the affirmations that you're teaching kids. Do you have a favorite? No, <laughs> I have so many of them. Um, one of my favorites is uh, every day is a new sheet of paper to write on. 
And, and that's one of the ones that I've seen uh, actually have an effect on the kid's life because he would always be in trouble no matter what. It's like, okay, every 10 minutes he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing. And so one particular day when he adopted that one, he got in trouble and I was about to send him to the principal with a referral. Well, Mr. Johnson, you know, I'm trying. I always try so hard. You know, every day is a new sheet of paper for me to write on. So can you just give me? <laughs> so I ended up giving him a fresh start and ripping up the referral. And about five years later, I actually saw this kid in the uh, Sand Creek Library in Colorado Springs. And he was an adult. And he saw me, identified me, came up, gave me a big hug. And I said, so what are you doing these days? He had joined the Army. He had two deployments. He got his rank to a sergeant. And, you know, so I was like, that is awesome, you know. And I asked him, I said, do you remember your quote that you used to, you know, roll with? He's like, yeah, I still use it. Every day is a new sheet of paper to write on, you know. So that right there is kind of that lifelong piece of something that you can use all the time, you know. And, and that's what I try to promote, too, is to let the kids know that when you do get these concepts and, and you know, different type of interventions, you continue to use them, you know, throughout your life. Something that they can repeat themselves that's positive thinking. I love that. In many ways, this pandemic, I've gotten so tired of hearing the word unprecedented, but, you know, this is unprecedented. And then there are so many things that are going on with it and alongside it from a national reckoning with racial injustice and with economic crises. And what are your thoughts on just the number of kids who have experienced mental health stress compared to the normal anxiety that kids feel just as a part of growing up? Yeah. When you think about things that happen in life itself, I mean, you know, grit. That term seems to be missing. You know, when you think about it, it's like not giving in, you know, um, doing your hardest to get through, you know, and, and as you get through, you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's something that I teach the little ones and the older kids is that, you know, as you get through it, when you grow through it, you know, and that's what it's going to take these days, you know, the norms is not norm anymore. So you have to elevate yourself to a point to get through it. That's Antoine Johnson, a behavioral specialist at World Compass Academy in Castle Rock, Colorado. After the break, meeting mental health needs in Colorado's mountain towns and more strategies for building grit and getting help. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News. As a member, you are essential because you help make the statewide news and music service possible. Nearly 50% of CPR members are sustaining Evergreen members who keep programming strong month after month. It's easy and affordable to join them and start giving monthly today. If you're already giving, please consider increasing your existing gift by a few dollars a month. Thank you for keeping the news and music going strong. Make your gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. On this special episode, we're exploring how the pandemic trauma we've lived with for over a year can take a toll on mental health and how that stress might stick around even after the pandemic's under control. For Annie Rimstead from Longmont, she feels like she's wearing a straitjacket. For me, it's always been a tightness. What, what the stress does to me is it just it just freezes me in place and I feel like I can't think straight and I can't just go. I can't just do my regular routines or my regular chores. She's a stay-at-home mom with four kids under eight years old. 
she feels like her kids need more from her than she can give right now. And when they don't have their teachers and their playmates and karate and soccer to get all that energy out, you know, it's like all on me now. It's that I know I can't fulfill all those needs. That's where the stress comes in for me. That's compounded by the helplessness she feels when she thinks about how many people are suffering because of the pandemic, social injustices, and political divisiveness. When it comes to coping... I've tried a lot, mostly with not great success, until I until I reached out for therapy and for um, medication help. Those have done better than anything else as far as coping, but also um, getting outside when I can and, and moving my body. Stories like Rimstead's are familiar to Rick Ginsburg and Stacey Freudenberg. They're both licensed psychologists, and they've been there for Coloradans who have reached out for help with the pandemic's mental health pressures. Ginsburg is from Denver. He's the former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. Hi, Rick. Hi, Avery. And Stacey Freudenberg is the clinical director for Bright Future Foundation in Avon, Colorado, which assists people in Eagle County who are affected by domestic sexual assault. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you. We shared Annie Rimstead's story and Pam Giordano's story earlier in the show. Giordano sees opportunities slipping away like sand in an hourglass. We included those stories and dedicated an entire show to talking about mental health because a lot of people in Colorado and beyond are struggling right now. But we got a message from Brent Hendricks, who said, to me, pandemic stress looks like a relentless barrage of radio shows, websites and magazine covers discussing pandemic stress. I'm curious if they've, there have been any studies about how self-fulfilling temporary stress disorders can be when they're analyzed endlessly. Rick, help me check our assumptions here. What is the value of talking publicly about mental health and what are the limits? I think that there's an incredibly wonderful um, benefit to actually doing this right now. Because as your first guest, uh, Dr. Jane, mentioned, what we really need to do is educate the public about what is actually happening. Uh, So frequently, people are uh, under the assumption that they can handle this all on their own and that they have all the resources that they need. And some of that is certainly true, but um, there's a lot that's being missed. So getting this information out to the public is pretty critical. And Stacey, we are in an unusual situation where the entire world is experiencing trauma at the same time. But what I am hearing is that people feel isolated in their particular situations and fears. Would you reflect on the types of mental health trauma from the pandemic that you're seeing in your practice? Sure. I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of increase in anxiety and depression, certainly, and symptoms related to trauma, whether or not somebody meets that diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder, they can still have um, symptoms related to trauma that are impacting their overall functioning. And so we're seeing an increase in all of those things across the board, certainly in our communities. And you practice in Eagle County. Are there mental health struggles particular to Colorado's mountain communities? I would say that, you know, social isolation is probably one of the biggest things that people are experiencing and I and a decrease in access to care. We're seeing um, an increase in utilization of behavioral health services across our mountain regions. And unfortunately, that means that the wait lists are getting longer and longer. And when the pandemic hit, those wait lists kind of shot through the roof. And so there are organizations that are working towards um, bridging that gap between our need and what we currently have available. But it's going to be a slow you know, kind of a slow start um, to getting that off the ground. And so I'm hopeful that in the future, people will be able to access that. But I think one of the biggest things has been access to quality care for folks. 
And we're going to talk about those gaps in access in just a moment. Rick, what about in your practice in Denver? What are you hearing from your clients at this stage in the pandemic? Well, we're hearing a lot of people feeling pretty agitated about simply going back to their normal lives. And so uh, when we're looking at this, sometimes it's useful to look at what is simply uh, something that you're not used to. So you're trying to do it again. So you're rusty, so to speak. Um, And you haven't had much experience for a while interacting with people in the workplace, going back to school, socializing with friends and what sort of veers its way into something that's a little bit more clinical. Um, When you start seeing these anxiety symptoms that Dr. Jane, your first guest, was talking about, um, or uh, Mr. Johnson, um, uh, the um, person who was working with students, was talking about, um, you want to be aware of um, these more serious symptoms that are coming up because it does exist on a continuum. And so we're seeing a lot of people who are struggling in a lot of different ways, and that's all okay. And no, no um, struggle is more important than someone else's struggle or um, just because it's a different caliber. We need to look at it all and uh, respect it all and help people get through it to the other side. And what are some of the ways that struggling with pandemic trauma can look right, look like right now? We've been doing this for so long. I think it's easy to kind of lose track of what it was like before. Certainly. Um, well, I, I think some of your previous guests really help illustrate that. And um, it can be anything from some of your classic trauma symptoms, nightmares, irritability, um, thinking about the event, fear about going into the world um, and exposing yourself to various stimuli that have been threatening to a certain degree. But it can also take place in... Um, things that are a little bit more subtle that we might not necessarily uh, associate with the pandemic or with the trauma. And that could look like uh, lethargy, feeling a little bit more tired, um, uh, relying more on um, poor coping mechanisms, socially isolating and things like that, not, not being able to concentrate. So those are some of the things that we're seeing in the wake of this. And Stacey, I'd love for you to reflect on this idea that we can kind of get stuck in the hyper-awareness that we've been feeling for a year. Where do those feelings come from? Yeah, that's such an interesting concept because I think as we walk through life since the pandemic hit, we're constantly assessing our surroundings for threats, which is a normal thing for humans to do. But when we feel like our entire environment, as soon as we leave our home and go out into the world, whether we're going to the grocery store, we have to go to work, or even just interacting at a gas station, everything seems dangerous right now to us. You know, is this person sick? Am I going to catch COVID from picking this object up? And it's not something that we're used to. And over the course of a year after having this heightened awareness of, you know, sensing fear or danger in our environment, our nervous system can get stuck on on and we can have kind of a lingering impact of that where we're hypervigilant. We're always, we're just kind of fearful um, that something bad is going to happen, you know, as soon as we leave our sort of safe zone. So how do you turn it off? How do we get back to a way that we don't feel so uncomfortable socializing again or going to the grocery store or those different things that might be causing some anxiety? 
I think that's such a great question. I know that some of the the, um, people that you had on earlier were noting some coping skills to engage in, such as breathing techniques and, you know, guided visualization and grounding. Um, And those are all really helpful. I think one of the things that's very pandemic related that I've seen a lot of successes with is since we are constantly sensing danger in our environment currently, helping us understand where are our safe places. We definitely still have some. And so that might be your house. It might be your car, whatever it is for you. Maybe it's out in nature. Um, but allowing yourself to feel that, that sense of being safe whenever you step into that zone. So kind of identifying that safe place. And then when you enter into that safe place, kind of allowing your nervous system to settle a little bit by looking around you and noticing what it feels like in your body to have that sense of safety. And I found people really respond well to that because it allows our nervous system just a a breather, I guess, before we have to go back out into the world and have that, that hypervigilance that seems, um, you know, it's, it seems so normal these days. Right. And Rick, what about for people who are helping kids and teens navigate those pressures? We heard a little bit from Antoine Johnson about some of the positive thinking that can help kids. What are some other things that parents can do? Uh, Well, some of the anecdotes that Mr. Johnson mentioned were right on, and he's obviously on the front line of some of this. But what we know about kids is that they don't their brains don't actually develop until they're in their mid-20s. And so a lot of what he said about um, them not having the vocabulary necessarily or even the emotional um, the emotional bandwidth to figure out how to deal with their upset is really true. So oftentimes you're seeing children uh, struggle for words around describing what they're feeling and internalizing things, and sometimes that comes out physically. Um, so... Uh, One other thing that I thought of when he was speaking was, um, and and many of us might remember this if we ever took psychology classes in high school or in in undergrad, is this hierarchy of needs, which is an old, sort of an old developmental psychology model, which really talks about basic needs being, uh, um, basic needs must be met first, such as things like safety and security, in order for us to Uh, uh, operate at a higher level, in a more evolved level. And so that's happening. So I think one of the things that you can do with children is really help give them some of the vocabulary that they need to express what it is that they're feeling, but also give them a lot of nonverbal techniques to allow themselves to soothe their sort of frayed central nervous systems, as well as express themselves in ways that don't involve a lot of vocabulary or words that we might expect of older people. Stacey, is, how are you helping folks with kids? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about, um, about kids is that sometimes, depending on what age range they're at, and even sometimes older kids and teens, don't necessarily have the language that they need um, to be able to express how they're feeling. And so I think it's really important for us to open up a dialogue with them, create a space for them to have conversations and feel comfortable talking about how they're feeling. And if they don't feel like talking, that's okay too, but letting them know that we're there for them when they are ready to talk or if they do need to talk, I think that creates a really powerful message for them. Um, And just helping increasing their language, helping them identify words that go along with their emotions and how they're feeling so that they can better describe it. Um, Because talking about it is one of the first lines of defense for things like that. And before we go, I want to talk briefly about some of the systemic issues that this pandemic has highlighted in mental health. 
Stacey, if there's one thing that you'd like to see um, there be more access to or one change you'd like to see, what might that be? In terms of increasing access, I mean, I certainly would like to see an increase in behavioral health, mental health programs um, that are accessible for individuals who have, um, you know, a wide range of financial um, situations. And I think one of the most difficult things are folks, you know, who might have Medicaid or might have more financial barriers. We're seeing that they don't have a lot of access to services in our rural regions. And I think increasing that access would be um, so is so important and so needed. And Rick, in about the 30 seconds or so we have left, tell me about a change to access you'd like to see. Well, um, I certainly agree with, with Stacy. We need to ensure that people of low incomes um, and people who are in historically oppressed groups who have not had access to health care, who have not even had the education in which the stigma for mental health treatment is much higher. We need to get people out there um, talking to them about mental health treatment, talking to them about their own mental health and ensuring that they have the resources in order to succeed and thrive and be healthy. So that's what I'd love to see. And, and we need to do it in a lot of different ways. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Avery. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Stacey Freudenberg, a psychologist and the clinical director for Bright Future Foundation in Avon, Colorado. Rick Ginsburg is a psychologist in Denver. He's on the board and former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. Remember, if you are feeling really stuck right now or if you are in crisis, you can call the Colorado Crisis Services Hotline for free and professional help. Their number is 844 844- 493-TALK. That's 844-493-TALK, where you can text TALK to 38255. Thanks for joining us today on a special Colorado Matters and to the team who makes this show. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.